you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is The Heart Where Once Was a Hole by Brett Norwood. Good day, monster baiters, and welcome to Monster Porn. I'm Matt, and this, unfortunately, is Brett. Good day. We want to shout out everyone who's been monster baiting at work, in the car, in the grocery store, at the gym, the laundromat, on the toilet, in a spacesuit, wherever you monster bait. You're the wind under our wings. Apple Podcasts user Pandolin78 left this awesome review. So wrong, yet so right. Every day I tell myself I won't do it again. And here I am, yet again, monsterbating at work, leaving the door unlocked because it's more exciting that way. All that's missing is a plushie of a certain teacup piggy. Well, Pendolin78, we did try making plushies of Puggles, but they kept spontaneously catching fire after uttering the seven arcane names of Yaldabaoth, even with their mouth stitched shut. Weirdest thing. Thanks for the Apple Podcast reviews. Thank you all for listening and enjoy the show. The signage bore true. The so-called road to desolation is truly desolate. What are you talking about? Look at the trees and flowers. I'd love to see this place in the fall. Man, the northeast is beautiful. Exactly. The road to hell is often lined with wildflowers and red maples. What? So what is your plan, Matt? When we get to Stephen King's villa, are we just going to storm the compound? How do we get inside? You forget. We have a bona fide eldritch abomination in the backseat. Where'd the checks mix go? Hey! What are you worthless sacks of flesh when I pass the Doritos? Do you ever stop eating? Do you have any idea how many calories it takes to destroy all the life on a planet? Tell me, Bacon Butt. If a holocaust is your aim, why haven't you started yet? Well, you know, when you've been around for a few millennia, things don't always work the way they used to. Man, but there's the wonderful things you guys do with potatoes here. You know how many species would invade your planet if they found out about your spuds? Oh, I could do some salt and vinegar kettle chips. Hey, Dickless, you got any chips? Is that supposed to refer to one of us? Well, I had to throw it out there and check. Pass those Gatorades back, will ya? Adaphagia, have mercy. He's drinking them all at once with weird... Probisky? Straw things? Ugh. Kind of gross. Oh, God. Pull over. Pull over. I think I'm, I'm going to... Oh, oh, God. Yep. Yeah. Wait. I know an incantation for this. Hail Asphaltia, full of grace. Help me find my parking space. Well, no shit. Would you look at that? A truck stop just appeared. Huh? The tall one isn't entirely worthless. Oh, pull, pull over. 
those flesh straws out again. <clears throat> well, don't all jump to thank me at once. Doompig, you needed more snacks and Matt. You were in need of a place to resolve your weak constitution, and I encanted this into being. Uh, yeah, but you could have encanted one of those giant travel plazas, you know, like one of those ones with the Schlotzky's deli. I think that's what would make me feel better, just a big, fat Schlotzky's. <sighs> Anyways, instead we got this gas station that says Truck S. It looks like the T.O.P. fell off. Maybe decades ago. Huh, this is straight out of an 80s movie. Well, tramps can't be chancellors, Matt. Do you ever say anything that makes any sense? You've never heard that saying? Oh, would you look at that? This place is full of skeletons. They're all dead. Of course they're all dead. They're skeletons. You clearly haven't met many skeletons. Oh, and no one is guarding the non-perishables. Oh, I'll take all the oh ho-hos and... Oh, what is that? What is that? Are those crunch taters? Oh, get in my belly, crunch taters! Oh, 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 oh. oh give me three minutes and this is all going to be gone. Huh. Well, I suppose that the Sunny hasn't gone bad and... Ooh, whoppers! They fit in the mouth so nicely. Do you think Planter's nuts have got too old to eat? Who's Planter? Really? Oh, they have hubba bubba and not the gum, but the soda. Oh, and more crunch taters. Give me the crunch taters. And Lifesaver's soda. How can any of this stuff hold this long before going bad? Who cares? Let us procure our unpaid for goods and get... Wait, do you see that? You mean you want to loot this joint? No, look. Oh my god, yeah. There's a truck running in the parking lot. I like its sneakers. How is it doing that without a driver? Oh no, Matt. It's all the trucks. They're all looking at us like they want to give us an express lube change. Why do I have the feeling we're about to get trucked? A girl of, he estimated, marriageable age, and wearing the skirt with bodice and apron of a domestic servant, hustled with her burden of two buckets of fresh milk, suspended from the yoke over her shoulders, down the dirt street. It was late in the morning when he took a seat on the post meant for tying horses, which was between the tavern and the money changers. His gray eyes pierced upstream in the sunlight, following the dairy girl. She could feel his eyes. He could see her begin to glance, but stop herself and divert her eyes back to her sandals, a frown of distaste setting firm on her face upon realizing it was the swarthy, sinewy foreigner, perhaps more pack animal than a man in her estimation. He took a deep breath and gazed down the street of Thanali, out of town, toward the farmlands. Beyond them, far beyond them and invisible now, was the home that was not his home. He was an outlander. There were many tribes of outlanders with which the city-state of Thanali was familiar. There was the Sun Tribe and the Moon Tribe. There was the Saturn Tribe and the Sothis Tribe. 
There was the Goshawk tribe and the Ghost Cat tribe. But really, to the civilized, they were all the same. All the same in being nothing much. Nothing more than an occasional pirate raid or cattle theft in the outlying towns. Roth came from the Storm tribe. His tribe was dead. The tacit insult from the milk girl rolled off of his ego like water from feathers. He was accustomed to it. For no matter how nice it would be to take a young woman to bride, there were no longer any women born of the storm. Saturn had taken them all and made them daughters of Saturn, and, by now, years later, mothers of Saturn. And these women of Thanali, well, any woman who had options in life, opted not for a swarthy outlander of no family and no livelihood. There were, Roth well knew, when he visited the tavern principally, women who had no options, women who would not disdain the powerful frame of the outlander, women who worked the tavern and the alleys, slaves and whores and opium addicts. He'd taken consolation there before, but it was not consolation he wanted. He'd allowed himself missteps as often as he allowed himself to drink, which was not often anymore. Only on his darkest days, for if Roth would make anything of himself now, it would be as a soldier for hire, and the drink would keep him in no fit condition for that vocation. It was the only craft he knew, an expertise brought down from the steplands. The only alternative would be as a slave, and he would not be a slave. He could not squander his days, and few measly coins, on tavern debaucheries, as good as it felt to play pretend with some hopeless slave girl with low standards for a day. Good for a moment, anyway, and then swiftly regrettable. What Roth wanted was more like what he imagined life was like out on those farmlands. A cottage, a few acres of land, a fence and some cattle, a young blonde wife of that sturdy and conservative middle-class Thanulian stock, bringing in the milk in the morning while Roth stoked the coals and cut the sausage. Roth told himself he'd give anything for that mirage, even up to his life, and perhaps that is indeed how much he would have to be willing to give. It was that, pledging his worthless life in the gambit of a mercenary. Or slave. Hey, Outlander! whined a voice behind him. You're scaring off business! It was one of the money changers, leaning over the counter a small, sickly man with a vulture's head. His skin was gray and blooming with new sores. His eyes were slightly yellow. This all was evidence of too much contact with the unmen. It takes more than me to keep the people from your delightful extortion, Roth replied. Don't be snide, the animan sneered. Move along. The women can't go to market with a goon like you in the way, leering at them. The city wardens ought to have a word for you soon enough. Which word might that be, Featherhead? Roth called back. The birdman only growled and pulled his head back into the money changer's office. Are you seeking work, Outlander? Came another voice, a woman's, deep and rich. Roth turned and saw her there in black. Black hair with a pale face and aquiline nose. She resembled busts of the ancient empresses and carried herself accordingly, with her shoulders back and chin up beneath a hood. A jade brooch set in pewter clasped her cloak at the collar. Roth sat up straight, 
Lout! The money changer shouted, his noodle wavering out from the window over the counter again. The word is lout! Oh! He stopped himself, seeing the lady. With a thoughtful hum, he retracted into the shadows. Are you hiring? Roth asked the noblewoman. She held her hands lightly clasped in front of her. Her eyes were bold and direct. His vagabond gaze drank her in. He estimated she was his senior, albeit by a small tally of years, and this inference came only from the slight weathering to her face. She had perhaps had a harder life than her poise at first glance would suggest. She was perhaps no noblewoman, but one who played at being an upstart. Her body was fine by what the curvature of her black traveling cloak suggested. She was not short, but not notably tall. I have come to market with a purpose, she said. There is something I intend to purchase. And what is that? Roth stood from the post, smirking. The one thing I can't supply myself, she answered. Muscle. Now, more to emphasize the point than for her own pleasure, her eyes passed over the outlander, top to bottom and back. He smiled a cocky smile. She explained. There is a farmer's young widow. She is troubled by a cruel husband. Roth answered. If she is a widow, then, doesn't she do well? She does worse, the lady answered. Precisely because she is a widow, and still this has not cut short his cruelty. I am afraid I do not yet understand, Roth said. Can muscle contend against spirit or steel with delusion? Or can man with woman, she said with a smirk. Roth only smiled and shook his head. What's the job? She unfolded her hands, revealing the raven brooch binding her belt, and began to gesture as she explained. The husband has been enchanted, corrupted against nature. He returns from the grave nightly to canvas the farm and harass his wife. No longer human is he, but a monster with little trace of a soul, rejected by the earthen ones who embrace those who sleep in earth. If this is enchantment, can't enchantments resolve it? Ralph said, eyeing the brooch and recognizing what must be the sorceress, serving foreign queen Sinna, whose sigil was the raven. I told you I need that which I do not have. You have my sword, Roth said. I haven't even named what pay is offered, Outlander, she retorted. I trust a reasonable wage from the servant of such an esteemed mistress. Her hands again covered the brooch. Sooth, she said, challenging Roth's eyes. First, how do I call you, Outlander? Roth, he told her. It is easy to omit both patronymics and heraldry when both are non-existent. A name befitting the eyes, she said, and issued a noise that was almost a laugh. And for yourself, he returned, but the lady ignored him. Very well, Lord Roth, she said Lord with irony. The pay is seven days at the rate the capital pays its soldiers, but for one night's work, you shall accept in showing yourself near Sylvester's Hill at twilight this eve. The farm is not far. Roth nodded, and she turned before he could say, good fortune. And somehow, the unique woman, tall and dark, 
blended immediately into the market and was lost among plain farm girls, merchants, and hair-shirted slaves. Roth watched the shadow cast by Silvestrius Hill subsume the neighboring barley field and began to work up the side of a daub-plastered farmhouse, his shoulder planted against the gnarled, dead tree at its crest. He was not one to lightly start, but he was also not one to be snuck up on. The dark, droning voice came unsuspected from behind him, and he lifted himself from the tree and whirled. Outlander, she said, fortune to know the fathers put either courage in your heart or a void in your wallet. He couldn't say how it was she came so close behind him on foot in the still air without his knowing, but he could see that her feet were bare beneath the black traveler's cloak, stepping through the pale prairie grasses. She raised her right hand to hail him and then pointed into the valley, toward the now-shaded farmhouse. Yon the place, she said. When the sun sets, the widow shall be stalked by the one who doesn't sleep. Come, I will show you the place. Behind them, as they descended the face of the hill, the reddened sky began to bruise purple. The dry grass of the prairie began to age hoary gray. They met the road, just a ruddy two-track, worn by cart traffic and horses, and followed it in silence until a carn at the edge of a flagstone barrier marked the trail overshadowed by sentinel poplars, which went to the farmhouse. Mosquitoes zipped through the air, and Roth swatted them when they alighted on his neck and arms. The woman stopped in the yard, crossed her arms, and faced Roth. He shifted his feet in the dirt and gazed over the yard and the house. Clay tile shingles over daubed walls, a narrow and short front door, and a single window with a sill, poplars surrounding all, a pile of wood stacked under an eave. He is interred there, the woman announced, raising one finger to point while keeping her arms hugging herself. Indeed, Roth could see the disturbed ground beneath a tree and marked with a small carn just before the woodpile. He will rise if he suspects no ambush when the sun has fully set. He will wait inside with the woman and watch. And how, sorceress, does one kill that which is already dead, Roth said. We're all born dead, Outlander. We must only be reminded time to time, and often by force. Hmm. Roth grunted. And there is no one else here? Has the woman no relations? Only it seems odd that the lone widow should hold an entire farm. It must be that the death is very recent. Aye, last week only, the sorceress affirmed. And every night since she has been haunted. And in what manner does this abomination imperil her? Roth wondered. Ah, look, here she is, the woman said as the front door clicked and rattled open and the young widow crouched through the door. Hail, the sorceress said to the widow, raising again her right hand. The widow only nodded in return as she came up to them, glancing swiftly over Roth and then avoiding his eyes. She had long blonde hair, already let down from the bun of a married woman, and blue-gray eyes, round cheeks, and a mild nose. Geiger, she said. This outlander mercenary is hired to put the one who troubles you to rest. As you can see, he is a formidable and capable man of the North, and should have no difficulty dispatching a mere corpse. Geiger nodded. 
I leave him with you, as I have promised. You need not serve him as a guest or worry yourself with him. He is self-sufficient and needs nothing but his payment, and I have promised I will pay. His honor is my honor, and you need not fear him, for I hold his wage, and you know well that I will make any answer who would harm you. He will stand by your window and watch the grave, and do his work when the hour falls. And then he shall leave and meet me again on the hill at dawn. Geiger nodded again and fidgeted with her hands. Roth continued surveying the environs and frowned thoughtfully at his mistress's instructions. Roth stole a glance at Geiger. The Revenant had been a lucky husband. He could see why a man would refuse to stay in that shallow grave. He also burned to think that a husband should mistreat this woman, and was already busy butchering the corpse in his mind. Sinna's sorceress gave her leave for the evening, and before Roth followed the widow Geiger into her home, he paced over to the grave and gazed over it. A stick of sacred spruce stuck up at the head of the carn. The burial had been backfilled with loose clumps bristled with dead grass now jutting at the wrong angles. It was a lazy or hasty job. Perhaps he had been buried more than once now. As he headed for the house and the door hung open for him, though abandoned and showing only a sliver of the black interior, he felt a prick on his neck. He swatted and examined his wide red palm. What Roth found was not a mosquito. It was a little blue girl mimicking a mosquito, with a long snout and a hunched back and translucent wings. It was the fairy kind called Wodes, things which would blossom into existence and fade just as suddenly, as if only to mock the living with their games and omens, unliving mimes of life, and now smashed in Roth's palm, an undead mime of death which, crumpled as if dead, now broke a smirk and then snickered, poking one sprightly eye at Roth before vanishing before his eyes. Hearing a tiny buzz, he lifted his eyes in time to see another woad speed by in the same likeness of a mosquito. This is an omen, Roth thought. This is a bad omen. Roth didn't say anything to Geiger when he entered her home. He simply closed the front door, quickly surveyed the layout of the two-room building, living room and kitchen, lit by low fire of the hearth, noted the back door for egress and each of the three windows, and then planted his feet in front of the window facing the grave and crossed his arms. He could hear Geiger doing things behind him for a while, but he did not pay her mind. Eventually, it sounded like she had taken to rest on her bed. His mind was free to imagine scenarios for beheading this monster with his knife. Geiger's voice rose timidly against the silence, like a child afraid to break into the business of grown-ups. What's your name? Roth half turned over his shoulder. She was curled on her cot in her day clothes, dress and apron, facing him. He thought she appeared afraid of him and curious in roughly equal measure. My name is Mercenary, Roth told her. What does he do when he rises from his place? He returned his gaze out the window. Geiger mumbled as if putting her thoughts together, and then said, He, well, he, it, 
goes around the house watching through the windows, so so I've been shutting the shutters, and then he raps as if with his knuckles through the whole night. Hmm, Roth toned. He hasn't laid hand on you. Not since the burial? She told him. Hmm, he toned again. But I fear what he might do. She erupted after a pause. I fear, oh, it's horrible, but I fear he still wants to claim his right as husband. Oh, I wish he would rest. Roth said nothing. She went on. Sorceress has been so kind to me, and her mistress, the queen, making me feel safer all these nights. Why don't you leave? Roth asked. The question was met with some silence. Then, The farm is mine by law of inheritance, she said. And is all I know. I don't want to leave it. Not even for another farm and another farmer, Roth wondered dryly. You could sell it, if you hold title, and be free of the past altogether. I will be forced, she said, if you cannot put him to rest. You can, can you not, mercenary? Hmm, Roth confirmed. And you have hires to work this farm. Aye, she said. But in season, of course. Why? So there's no one else about the land tonight? No, she confirmed. Has it been attempted to mutilate the body during the day while it sleeps? She took a breath which spoke of horror at the thought. Should one desecrate the grave? The grave already seems desecrated, Roth observed, and then added, I recognize I spoke frankly, contrary to good manner but I am concerned more with repairing the situation, and less so with niceties and humoring the judgment of men. From where do you come to us? She wondered without pause. Ah, Roth stalled. I have no homeland, no nation. Everyone comes from somewhere, she answered. My lands had no name, even when they were my lands, and they are no longer, Roth replied. My people are dead, and I've no desire to claim their parentage. After a moment, he added, There is no reason to discuss me. There is nothing you need know. I apologize, she said, and meekly. I apologize, for I'm afraid, and I feel the need to talk to pass the time and not think about what is coming outside. I also wonder who this is who defends me tonight. Hmm, Roth droned. I'm no one. I'm an ox pulling a plow, and you do not ask about the oxen. Does he expect the shutters to be fastened? The shutters have been fastened these nights, yes, she answered. But don't you need to see? If it is his way to knock rather than enter, I am not too concerned to see him first. I am more concerned that he should see me, or sense that the house is too inviting. Yet I do not know how much cunning can be ascribed to the dead. I suspect not much. Roth reached and pulled in the shutters and fastened the hook. Now, unable to see out, he turned and sat beneath the window against the wall, facing Geiger. Burdened with his gaze, she scrambled into a proper sitting position and fixed her dress. But his eyes, after calmly setting on her for a moment like green-gray stone, avoided her, reading the details of the room instead one more time, and then falling to rest on the hearth. There was nothing more central to the lives of these country people than the hearth, the heart of the household, and the axle hub of the wheel of family. Roth watched the coals scintillate, 
The fire had burned down to nearly nothing, mere veins of red dancing over black lumps. He wished for a time when he could have a hearth to sit beside in the evening with his family. Perhaps he could even admit to himself that he had entertained the idea that Geiger should be seeking a husband now, and that she had land that required a master. But he did not let this vain imagination play out. He cut it off as quickly as it arose. He was just a stray from a dead people, a mercenary and merely a novice at that. It wasn't a self-deprecating observation. It was a realistic one. He knew he wasn't anyone this widow should consider, even for a moment, as a suitor. Although, he noted, the fact that she was a widow and not a virgin would surely broaden the standards expected of her suitor. Perhaps a rare opportunity had been handed to him this night. Roth stared grimly at the fire. I am sorry you don't have anyone, Geiger said suddenly. I know how that feels. She gazed at her hands on the bed with which she had been fidgeting. As Roth stared at the flames, briefly a vision of the weather-worn pillar of the stormer flashed like the lightning he was supposed to wield, the totem and god of his dead nation, and one wholly unlike the earthen ones worshipped by these settled human, a warrior rather than a bureaucrat, a king rather than a judge. Hmm, Roth hummed. Don't concern yourself with me, lady. Geiger started suddenly. Roth turned his head and listened and put his hand to his mouth to show Geiger to stay silent. He waited and listened for a long time and heard nothing. Eventually, he took his hand from his mouth and resumed watching the hearth. On the hearthstones, which he had noted but not thought on before, there was a small urn, a very small urn. Roth thought on this now. Geiger caught him glancing at it, and he locked eyes with her. She looked away swiftly. They had lost a child. She opened her mouth as if to speak, but he interrupted her, not wanting her to feel compelled to address unpleasant things toward a stranger. Geiger, he said. This was the first time he had spoken her name, and he noted it felt ill-suited. He should have addressed her by what, given her birth and situation, was a generous title of lady. I am sorrowed by your loss but I know that you will find the husband and the family you need. I am also sorry to hear of your loss, Roth, she said. My loss is old and the wounds well healed, he answered. I was a child and remember little of my... He almost said parents, but he said race instead to make it less personal. They are dead now, and unlike some, they rest undisturbed and disturb none in return. Listen, if you would talk to pass the time, Tell me of your youth. How did you come to be here? It is surely a more pleasing history to hear. Geiger began to recount a thoroughly unremarkable childhood, and Roth found himself envious of how thoroughly unremarkable it was. Child to a farmer, sister to a farmer, wife to a farmer, droll afternoons chasing dogs in the fallow fields, the grueling harvest, winter evenings hearing grandfather telling stories of the Anamen, and the old heroes, memorizing poetry while sowing seed with the siblings, a simple love for dogs, horses, cattle, sun and moon, heaven and earth. But as wistful as moments seemed, Geiger's voice was tainted with a stain of bitterness, which Roth, at first, attributed to her recent losses. But 
he realized with increasing certainty, instead reflected a disdain for her own humble roots and the relative prison of a simple life where all the faucets are nearly determined from birth. This puzzled Roth a little. To him, this woman had had everything. Everything he had lost and would possibly never again find. Roth would wonder, what is freedom when all the things that have meaning in life are anchors? Freedom is a falsehood, a kind name for having nothing worth holding on to, dreamed of by those who are comfortable in what they have. Roth nodded politely as Geiger continued on to tell of her desire to see the great Anaman city of Azra'ul, with its gilded temples and green jewel-like pools. Well, if you fancy the life of a mercenary, you can see it, perhaps, he joked. And then there came the tap they had waited, and they fell silent and held their silence. There came another tap, and another. The unmistakable rap of a fingertip or knuckle on the nearest shutters. A sound like the wind, which was not the wind, built up subtly. A low, continuous respiration. Roth pulled the knife from the sheath on his thigh and locked eyes with Geiger. This time she held his gaze. Her eyes were shimmering, alert, fearful, hopeful, blue. Roth stood and spun in place. Throwing open the shutters, he lunged and took whatever waited by the throat, swifter than his eye could read his adversary and thrust the knife. What he found in his grip was the emaciated corpse of a lanky man, clumps of dirty blonde hair still clinging to a frayed scalp and eyes rotting from their sockets in caverns of black fluid and purpled blood. The jaw, falling open too wide, hissed with a voiceless breath like sizzling meat, and showed yellowed teeth, some of them even rotted black. The blade sank into the rancid flesh, spraying putrescence onto Roth's chest and filling his nose with a terrible smell. The creature jerked and thrashed and clawed at him with fleshless fingertips. The disgust made Roth let go which he knew immediately was a mistake, and a very green one. He was being weak. He could have finished the thing. The creature stood in the window for a moment while Roth held up the filth-smeared blade in a ready stance. Admittedly, slaying a thing already dead was novel to him, and he was not prepared for the wretchedness of it. It was much worse than slaying an unman, which, despite its superficial likeness to the dead, and being dead at heart, was still a living thing and smelled better than the alley behind a butcher's. Vile fluid poured from the gash in its neck as its jaw articulated as if trying to speak. Roth seized it by palming its crown and thrusting its face down onto the windowsill, where he began to saw into the neck from the back, trying to sever the tough ligaments of the spine. The thing's thin arms thrashed and felt awkwardly for Roth's face behind its back. The thing wasn't strong, but it thrashed with the irrational fury of an animal. It turned its head to the side on the sill and the jaw chattered and Roth feared getting his fingers caught in the clinking teeth. He pressed almost his full weight onto the thing's temple to keep it anchored, as he kept sawing and stabbing at the neck, as meanwhile a bony hand found Roth's face and gripped it, a half-defleshed finger slipping haphazardly over Roth's lip, bringing the taste of necrosis seeping into his mouth. The other hand also found his face and grappled it. Roth lay off the cutting and grabbed both of the creature's shredded arms, He dragged it through the window and onto the floor and pressed it face down, setting a knee in the middle of its back, and taking both wrists in one hand to carve with the other. Bony appendages clunked against the floorboards. Geiger screamed. At length, Roth sawed through the last sinews and the head came free of the body. 
which, giving up its clinging spirit, fell lifeless with a final thunk. He held up the head by a fistful of clumped hair, jaw sagging and black tongue lolling out, and showed Gagger, one foot still planted on the corpse's back. Roth smiled broadly. Geiger held her hands over her gaping mouth and gazed on him with wide, glistening eyes picked out by the fire in the hearth. Shortly, Roth had built a pyre from the wood stacked below the eave, and he immolated the body under the watch of night as the silent widow stood by. As the last flesh sizzled and seared away, Tarnished bones remained in the flames amid ashes and cinders as it got near to dawn. Roth purified his blade in the coals. Only a few paces away was the open grave, where dirt clods lay strewn aside as evidence of this thing's escape from rest. Come inside to wash, Geiger told Roth. It was perhaps the first she had spoken since Roth killed what remained of her husband. I will draw water and warm it on the hearth. She turned to the house. Roth half-turned to watch her go. After a few moments of watching his knife begin to glow red, he pulled it from the fire and set it aside to cool, and followed Geiger into the house. She prepared a brass bowl of fresh, clean water on the hearthstones, in which Roth washed his face and hands and then his breast. Then he sat by the hearth in the warmth and turned to look at Geiger, who sat on the floor not far off, watching him. Golden-flecked light danced off of her features. I will now take my leave, Roth declared. Your trouble is ended. I wish you well. Geiger sat forward and grabbed his arm. Roth gripped the back of her neck and kissed her on the mouth before he knew what he was doing. She moved into his lap. You should not, he said. I will not injure your honor as a marriageable woman. Your mouth speaks differently from the rest of you. She answered. Hmm, he acknowledged. If I take anything from you, it shall be rightly. I do you no dishonor. We need not proceed after the manner of brides, she said lowly, touching her abdomen. When there is also what is called the manner of the street. And then she touched, softly, her lower lip. She removed herself from his lap with a wry smile and bowed down over him moving aside the pterogies of his skirt. Roth was shocked, but yielded, falling back on his elbows as she placed her mouth on him and watched the red light of the coals reflect on her hair. Roth palmed her crown, and then he seized a fistful of her hair, but pulling back on her scalp to see her face revealed the fleshy tube covered in short gray hairs ejecting from her mouth and tipped in tiny, sharp teeth. Roth started back, casting her aside. He scrambled onto his feet. She kneeled, gazing up to him, a long proboscis erupting from her face. She flickered. Like a flame somewhat, she flashed, and for a moment was something else. Compound eyes, a hunched back. Roth reached for the knife he didn't have. Blood, he swore. Yes, blood, she echoed, buzzing with irony. She had her eyes fastened on the flopping member still somewhat flooded with blood. She skittered toward him, arms splayed to embrace him. The widow's needle-like noodle would reach him first of all, so all he could grab her by was this projection and conduct it away from his body. The rest of her crashed into him as he jerked the distended mouthparts up into the air over his head and then tumbled back onto her cot. Parts of her were covered in dirty gray hairs, 
and her back was swollen and hunched, but perfectly formed human breasts fell against his face. They wrestled, Roth all the while striving to keep that bloodthirsty appendage away from him. She palmed his face with one hand and dug into his side with the other. After several moments of grappling, Roth's free arm shot out and searched all around himself for anything in reach he might put to purpose, and his hand found the small urn on the hearthstones. He took it and shoved it into her proboscis, making it look like a snake that had just swallowed a rat, and causing her to rise up, grasping at her face in choking desperation. Roth grappled her and threw her wholesale into the fire pit and pressed her into the coals with his foot. He could not tell what was shrieking and what was sizzling of flesh. He felt sick. It was no enviable way to die, and no way for a woman, even one become a monster. But it was what he had done, and was done now, and he had to commit to it. He held her down until she stopped squirming and then vomited onto the cot. Roth stumbled from the farmhouse, below a sky just turning bruised purple. Near the simmering pyre, he took up his cooled knife and placed one hand on the woodpile to steady himself. Then he heard a voice. When unclean seeds are sown, unclean fruit year to year are grown. There was a smiling hair, or rather, a wide buck-toothed hare's head on the body of a small pudgy man, sitting atop the woodpile and gazing down on him. This creature laughed. He was naked, save for some body paint in swirls and dashes that marked him as a monk of animus. He bounded down from the woodpile, as if to escape into the fields, but Roth caught his ears in his fist and held him up off the ground, as he was, indeed, a very small man. His eyes fell sad. What say you, Animan? Roth growled. Know you not the saying of the countryside? When unclean seeds are sown, unclean fruit year to year are grown. Or how the earthen ones have a way of returning an opposite force for everything evil given to them? Have you never heard of revenants from the dead? Born when any contract is ruptured by manslaughter, but especially when family turns blade upon its own. Revenants whom the earthen ones return again and again until their injury to natural laws is repaid? It is a folktale of this people anyway. Don't worry. You cannot kill what the earthen ones will to live. Take a look in the grave and tell me what you see. Roth scowled at him but walked over to the open hole with the dirt clods strewn about it still holding the animan captive by the ears. Alicanthi, the hair-man went on. Alicanthi, the sorceress of that queen of Raquin, Lucina. Have you not heard these rumors either, foreigner? She it is who develops and tests new means of war, new corruptions of natural law for her mistress. And so she came here to play with new arts, and metamorphose the farmer's wife. Imagine, foreigner, loosening this plague on a whole countryside, not one household so defiled but a nation of defiled households. Hmm, Roth grumbled, and he repeated the name. Alicanthi. Doubtless the outlander, she relished finding a fine mercenary as yourself to test her works against. Oh, look, even there, declared the animan, the tip of one ear pointing up Sylvestrius Hill, where the blood-red light of dawn had backlit the form of the sorceress who had hired him, riding upon the back of a large cat. And down in the gaping ground, in a hole shaped roughly to the outline of a man, Roth saw a brand new beating heart, with new-grown veins rooted into the ruddy earth, the slimy impression of a man, portending one's dissatisfied, ceaseless return.
This is the kind of monster truck rally I like. There's six trucks driving themselves now. Just waiting in a circle around us like a pack of wolves. Oh, garbage truck candy and lots of fizz. The olden days really were better for your pathetic kind. Sorry to say it, but humans peak with push pops and squeeze-its. This all seems too familiar, Matt. Yeah, it's been bothering me, too. Look at that sign. Truck S. Trucks. My God, it's just like that story out of Stephen King's Night Shift. Trucks. Because it's called Trucks. You're right. Wait. You read Night Shift? Well, sometimes I must break up the perusal of ancient volumes of lore with lesser fodder, Matt, in order to rest my prodigious intellect. However... I had to set aside the Stephen King due to several weeks of sleep irregularities. Sleep irregularities? Wait, you mean he scared you? No! Focus on the trucks, Matt. Why? Look, they're just kind of parked out there. I mean, let's just get our stuff and leave. I don't think that's a good idea, Matt. Don't open that door! Why not? Jesus! That thing nearly hit me! Look at them. They're lining up at the gas pumps. Oh god, even your truck is at the gas tank. I remember this from the story. They want us to serve them. To provide fuel for them. You're right. Oh shit. I think I know what's happening. First Salem's lot, and now trucks. We've somehow driven into the collective imagination of Joe Hill and Stephen King. Oh, cry about it, why don't you? Look at all this free food. Nice service in that hat, Porky. Well, there was lots of memorabilia just sitting around. How oddly appropriate. Matt, get the door. Okay. Shit. Hi. Um, welcome to Truck S. Careful, Matt. That's a hungry, hungry Hemi. Bacon breath. Out with the flesh nozzles and meat pumps. Suck up all the jolt this place has to offer. If we're going to give these maniacal machines fuel, then let's hit them with the high-octane stuff. Oh, God, they're so limp and pink. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Feeling that jolt, baby. Ooh, it's kind of tingly. Okay, they've opened their gas caps. Plug yourself in, Puggles. Oh, God, I can't take this anymore. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's the spot. Yeah, baby. You suck that juice. You suck that sweet caffeinated juice. Oh, yeah. Sure, those trucks have had enough jolt to put a herd of Shugoths into cardiac arrest. Give it ten minutes and they'll all be passed out. Man, no wonder Stephen King wrote such weird shit. The 80s was the decade of sugar and caffeine, wasn't it? And cocaine, Matt. Never forget the cocaine. Huh, there's a little jolt left over. One sip couldn't hurt. Oh, God. Uh, uh, Monster Board Podcast is a production of Warbox Media. Today's story was The Heart Where a Hole Once Was by Brad Norwood. Music by him, too. Shit! Podcast recommendations! Woo! Listen to podcast! Yeah! Woo! Podcast! Darkness Frails! Time Suck! Astonishing Legends! Fuck yeah! Woo! Crunch Dinners!
Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Porn. Please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All the hardcore Monsterbaiters are doing it. Also, check out the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store, where you can find t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, the Moms Love Monster Porn mug, cocaine, crunch taters, and this episode on cursed VHS tape. You can follow Monster Porn on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks with another weird one. So until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. He's drinking them all at once with weird probisky straw things. Ugh. It's kind of gross. Kind of hot. How is it doing that without a driver? Brett! <laughs> I forgot to say yes, Brett. Yes. So. <laughs> the woman said as the front door clicked and rattled open. And a young window. What? <laughs> Who proofread this shit? As you can see, he is a formidable and capable. Capable. <laughs> he opened her mouth. No, he did not open her mouth. Uh, that would be awkward. But he interrupted her, not wanting her to feel compelled to address unpleasant things toward. <laughs> Motherfucker! <laughs>